Welcome to the Advancing Women Podcast, where ambitious women come together to challenge the status quo, advance their careers, and up-level their lives. The Advancing Women Podcast is hosted by gender equity expert and executive coach, Dr. Kimberly D. Simone. Welcome, warriors, to the Advancing Women Podcast. It's strange how often we have to sell people on gender equality. First, we have to prove that we don't already have it. And that's easy enough when the data is considered. Second, that gender equality is not about accommodating women. That mindset is actually the opposite of equality. We don't accommodate half the population. It's about creating an environment conducive to the success of individuals in the 21st century. It's not a conversation about being asked to make changes for women. And finally, convincing people that gender equity is good for everyone. There are evidence-based, proven, positive outcomes for everyone, the world, nations, businesses, women, children, and yes, men too. This idea that things have gotten so much better persists, and with it, the idea that the work is done, when the data just doesn't support that. There is a data-supported, evidence-based women's leadership gap. Women are 51% of the population, yet only 12% of top earners in this country are women. Less than 10% of CEOs are women, despite earning more than 50% of undergraduate degrees and 59% of all master's degrees and representing almost 50% of graduates from top institutions that prepare and churn out CEOs like Harvard and Stanford MBA programs. I read an article titled, For Large U.S. Companies, CEOs Named John Outnumber Total Number of Women CEOs. Yep. This Harvard Business Review study found there are more CEOs at large companies named John and also more named David than there are women with the top job. The data are clear. Things aren't fixed, not by a long shot. That there is a gender leadership gap is not opinion or conjecture. It's not complaining. It's what the data clearly show. So as I noted at the start, the three challenges are getting people to see there's a problem, getting past the accommodation narrative, and then that there is value for everyone in gender equality. It is not a zero-sum proposition. It's interesting, though. I just started reading a book called Invisible Women, Data Bias in a World Designed for Men by Caroline Criado. Interestingly, in addition to illustrating how women's experience and perspective are often underrepresented in the data, she talks about how even when we have the data, too often it doesn't change anything. Or if it does, the changes can too often be about the optics versus the opportunities for real change. We have a plethora of data on unconscious bias in hiring and promotions in every field. I'm a professor. There's a ton of data that we as academics create showing that, for example, student evaluations are biased, whereby women faculty are given more harsh feedback. We know that women faculty are expected by students to be more accommodating, understanding, and nurturing, which is really reflective of societal expectations of women in general. So when a student earns a bad grade or are told, no, you can't turn something in late, or even if they're given constructive feedback, it lands differently based on the gender of the professor. We've had that knowledge for decades, but still student evaluations are a major factor in tenure. And I'm not saying they shouldn't be, but in knowing there's a bias, there has still not been any effort to address the inequity. So again, the playing field is not level. It's about change that moves the needle. A great example of this real change can be found with musicians in philharmonic orchestras. 
Now, orchestras have very low turnover. It's really kind of a lifelong gig if you get it. So if anywhere change would be a challenge, it would be here. But they wanted to change it, and they did. Guess how? I'll give you a hint. They did not give women musicians a mentor or put them through negotiating workshops or tell them they just needed to want it more. In an attempt to overcome gender bias, they changed their hiring practices and policies. As part of these revisions, a number of orchestras adopted blind auditions, whereby screens are used to conceal the identity and gender of the musician from the jury. And guess what happened? In the years after these changes were instituted, the percent of female musicians in the five highest ranked orchestras in the nation increased from 6% in the 1970s to 21% in the 1990s. Now, given the low turnover found in most symphony orchestras, the increase in female musicians is significant. This is what doing something with the data versus just having the data means. So that's an important part of the conversation. The second part of the difficulty in selling people on gender equity is the accommodation storyline, which, of course, fails to account for the realistic data of today's 21st century families in which the man as breadwinner, woman as homemaker model is no longer applicable. It is an antiquated model, yet it still drives policy and mindset when, in fact, few 21st century families mirror this model with women representing half the wage workforce, even working mothers. Census data show that around 80% of mothers work, and here's the part about how it impacts everybody. We have a cultural shift where men are much more likely today to express wanting to have a bigger role in parenting and home experience. So this isn't a narrative about accommodating women or having to change things for women. It's about creating environments that work today. I often talk about Williams and Dempsey's well-researched book, What Works for Women at Work. It's an excellent study and synthesis of the most significant barriers women face in the workforce. But I can't help but think we need a follow-up book called What Works for 21st Century Families at Work. So let's move to the third selling point, the value to everyone. The overarching theme of this episode, the value in gender equality. Gender equity is good for everyone, not just women. Dr. Stephen Covey is nationally known for decades for creating the seven habits of highly effective people. So let's consider habit number four, think win-win, to provide some context for this discussion. Covey notes, quote, when one side benefits more than the other, that's a win-lose situation. To the winner, it might look like success for a while, but in the long run, it breeds resentment and distrust, end quote. And we're really talking about a win-win opportunity here. Thinking win-win isn't about being nice, and it's not about a quick-fix strategy. It's a mindset for human interaction and collaboration. Culturally, too often, we measure our accomplishments in terms of comparisons and competition, especially in the world of social media. Too often, success is seen within terms of competition. We evaluate our success against someone else failing or succeeding less. That is, if I win, you lose, or if you win, I lose. There's this zero-sum mindset, as if there's only so much pie to go around, and if you get a big piece, there's less for me. So, quote-unquote, winning is about making sure others don't get more. There are even accolades for getting your unfair share of the pie, making sure nobody gets a bigger share than you. That's the goal too often. And this is that win-lose paradigm, and it hinders women's success and advancement by hindering male allyship. 
too often it's positioned as you're getting more of the pie. I want more of the pie. You need to give up some of your pie. And nobody's interested in giving up their pie. But if we interrupt the win-lose mindset and consider the win-win mindset, the abundance mindset, then maybe we can spend less time convincing others to align with our goals, to stand with us, to be allies. And advancing women needs to be seen as win-win, as a cooperative arena, not a competitive one. Win-win is a mindset that constantly seeks mutual benefit in all human interactions. Win-win means solutions that are mutually beneficial and mutually satisfying. As Covey emphasizes, quote, in the long run, if it isn't a win for both of us, we both lose. That's why win-win is the only real alternative in interdependent realities, end quote. To be sure, today's workforce and homes are indeed interdependent realities. So of course, this requires an abundance mentality, belief that there is enough for everyone. I've said this in past episodes, but it's worth reiterating. Privilege, and when we talk about privilege, we aren't talking about highly qualified, talented, hardworking men not advancing. If you are stellar, you'll succeed. A level playing field doesn't hurt top talents. So warrior men, no worries, you'll be fine. Covey notes that going for win-win is not just about being empathetic, but also about having confidence. It's not just about being considerate and sensitive. You also have to be brave. To do that, to achieve that balance between courage and consideration is the essence of, fundamental to, win-win. We focus so much on competition and not enough on cooperation. Focus on aggression versus compassion. Too often thinking in dichotomies, and I've talked about this in earlier episodes, that false dilemma fallacy that if I gain something, you have to lose something. And this is a fallacy. We tend to think that if we're nice, we're not tough. But win-win is nice and tough. Covey suggests win-win is twice as tough as win-lose because to go for win-win, you not only have to be nice and courageous, you have to be confident and empathetic. We have to see the pathway to and benefits of gender equity for all of us. Michael Kimmel, a preeminent scholar of men and masculinity, has an excellent TED Talk titled, Why Gender Equality is Good for Everyone, Men Included. And I'll include the link to that talk in the notes. But he begins the talk, with this first line, quote, I'm here to recruit men to support gender equality, end quote. So of course, I was hooked right from the start. I was like, preach, Michael, amen. So he goes on to talk about how there are those who see gender equality as something that is detrimental to men. And this quote from the talk is so poignant. He says, quote, if you listen to what men say about what they want in their lives, gender equality is actually a way to get the lives we want to live. He goes on to discuss research that shows how men today want to live where they have, quote, terrific relationships with their children. Notice he doesn't say that they want their kids to think they're great dads or they want to be seen as great dads. It's about wanting a great, joyful relationship with their children. So then, if men really want to be more present fathers, have great relationships with their children, they need more flexible work schedules to have more work-life balance. So then... At what point will we make the shift from a woman's request or problem that needs quote unquote accommodating to a 21st century family need or ask? That's really critical. Kimmel also notes that many men express that they want 
and expect their wives or spouses or partners to work outside the home in meaningful, interesting work they're committed to. It's interesting, right? Because for the first time, culturally, we're starting to hear more conversations about men having work-life balance and work-family balance. And that's pretty new. That has historically been a conversation about women who work. Certainly, there's still much more conversation about women having it all, but there are more men than ever beginning to complain to see the downside of sacrificing home and family time for work commitments. We too often think of equality for women in terms of men being expected to do more at home, more childcare, more domestic tasks, and certainly that is an important part of the conversation. The imbalance between working parents' household tasks is well documented in the literature as one of the limiters to women's advancement in the paid workforce and a host of other quality of life issues. But the conversation is also about men wanting many of the things the movement for women's equality has spearheaded. We're learning more and more through the current literature on work-life balance that it is perhaps a myth that work-life balance is just for women. Flexibility is historically associated with women, but recent research shows it is increasingly important to the recruitment and retention of men too. A recent Global Institute for Women's Leadership study found that 50% of men consider the availability of flexible working when looking for a new job, which wasn't far off the 60% of women who answered the same. Too often and for too long, diversity initiatives have focused on treating men and women differently, assuming men and women have different priorities. But recent research increasingly suggests that both men and women equally want well-paid jobs that fit in with family life. The key to achieving equality in the workplace, then, is recognizing this and shifting that mindset, that cultural shift that doesn't assume women will settle for less in the workforce and that men don't care about flexibility or work-life balance. The idea that career, power, pay, prestige aren't important to women may seem anachronistic in our current culture where women make up half our workforce, but the men as breadwinner, women as homemaker model persists. And it's not good for women, but it's also not good for men. Research shows the stress of men as sole provider or primary breadwinner has a negative influence on men's happiness and health. It may seem easier in the short term, even logical, to draw distinct lines and priorities for men and women based on salary and prioritizing of one career, but it's too often a short-term gain, long-term loss when we examine the consequences of a gendered society versus the benefits of gender egalitarian societies. So what does the data show about what men have to give up for gender equity? Isn't that the conversation? What are men going to have to give up? Well, research shows the more egalitarian the relationship, the happier couples are. Research shows that egalitarian marriages are happier than hierarchical marriages and that gender equity is not only good for marriages, but also for their children who are happier. Win-win. And the win-win goes on and on. Gender equity is good for men, women, children, but it's also good for countries. Research shows that the most gender egalitarian countries are the countries that score highest on happiness indexes. Catalyst research shows conclusively that the more gender equitable the organization, the better for workers on almost every key indicator from job satisfaction to lower turnover to better recruiting to higher rates of creativity and productivity. So instead of thinking about what gender equity is going to cost, We need to start thinking about what gender inequality is already costing us. Less happiness, less wellness, less life satisfaction, less abundance. Which begs the question, can 
policies promoting gender equality really change how happy we are in our lives. Previous studies have been largely mixed or tentative. And part of this is the way companies, unfortunately, and too often handle gender equity and promotion. In the book, The Invisible Rules, What's Really Holding Women Back in Business and How to Fix It, the authors stress that good intentions notwithstanding, programs must be firmly promoted as employee programs rather than female programs. And this thinking is spot on. We must shift the conversation from what women want and need, the accommodation narrative, to what we need as 21st century society. The world we live in today, where women and men both work, where both parents often work, we must focus on how we can all benefit from a more gender equitable society. A recent study explored this very question, utilizing four of the most well-regarded measures of a country's gender equality, the gender empowerment measure, the gender development index, the gender inequality index, and the gender gap index. These measures each capture different elements of gender equality, including women's representation in government, how long women have held the right to vote, equality with men in education, pay, and health, and whether women are equally likely as men to have senior level positions. Using all four measures resulted in a more comprehensive assessment of the level of gender equality in a society. The researchers combined the gender equity data with mean levels of life satisfaction from the World Value Survey, which was a massive and rigorous survey conducted in countries around the world, as well as data for other variables often shown to influence levels of satisfaction, like individualism of culture, gross domestic product, unemployment, economic growth. They also used data from the Eurobarometer survey to give a longer time period of analysis, and this was more than 15 years of data, looking at the United States, Canada, Europe, Australia, New Zealand, and Japan. They found clear and convincing results. Residents of countries with greater gender equality are, on average, more satisfied with their lives than are residents of societies with less gender equality. Now, from the perspective of women, these results may seem intuitive. But the question at hand is whether or not this increase in life satisfaction for women comes at the expense of men's life satisfaction. Does advancing the rights of women mean reducing the rights of men, as some have suggested? In short, the results of many studies and the robust study I just noted show that the answer is no. Breaking out life satisfaction by gender groups, the authors found that gender equality raises life satisfaction not just for women, but for men too. Providing opportunities for women in the government and in the workplace does not mean fewer opportunities for men to succeed and find happiness. To use the common aphorism, a rising tide lifts all boats. We all benefit from working towards equality and justice. And we are seeing major social cultural shifts in the way men feel about family and the issue of work-family balance. A recent GQ men's magazine survey with their male readers and found that readers' number one focus was to, quote, become a more present father. In her excellent TED Talk, Why Gender Equality is Not Just About Women, Carolyn Strachan focuses on three key tenets of gender equality, competence, capability, and child care. So the child care piece really speaks to how gender inequality is not a women's issue. She notes, quote, women don't just become mothers people become parents, end quote, which I think is profound and begs the question, how is it that we continue culturally to make parental leave a woman's ask? That's unfair to women to be sure, but it's also discriminating against men. 
If the GQ survey and others like it show that men want to be more present fathers, then we have to shift the conversation. Men should be out screaming in the streets about their inequity and discrimination in the workforce as it relates to parenting and parenting leave. If we all truly benefit from gender equality, and it is a human rights issue, not a gender issue, we have to create solutions that work for 21st century families. For too long, we've tried to workshop, mentor, and sponsor women out of inequity without addressing the structural, societal, and organizational barriers, the real societal changes, the shifts in mindset and policy and action that need to happen. Enough with the 1950s homemaker breadwinner model already. It's antiquated and nobody wants it. It doesn't work for men or women, and it certainly doesn't work for 21st century families, but here it remains. These are every person issues, 21st century family issues. It's crucial we create practical solutions that address the needs of a diverse, dynamic 21st century workforce. The solutions depend on us shifting our mindset from a woman problem to a human problem to our modern day workforce needs. Organizations and organizational leadership must be educated as to the difference between public relations diversity initiatives and leadership diversity and inclusion initiatives that fix the problem, that fix this broken pipeline. In the face of so many initiatives and so much cultural and media reinforcement that the problem is fixed, a more complete and accurate narrative is needed, a more practical narrative. Certainly, the public relations problem has improved whereby companies are not seen as culpable for the problem. The more initiatives that are implemented, the more the storyline is that they're doing everything they can. So the optics for corporate America and many different organizations has improved. The pipeline to leadership for women, however, remains broken. The extreme work model within the context of 21st century families, which includes families with both parents working outside the home, single parents, same-sex couples, no longer works. And again, it's not about women. Research shows it is difficult for men with working wives to advance when competing against men with stay-at-home wives. Likewise, same-sex parents see the same issues. In one study I conducted, I interviewed women on the verge of promotion within a Fortune 100 company to better understand their decision-making relative to their advancement. And one woman noted that her and her wife both worked for the same company, but now with the birth of their second child and with the promotion on the horizon, they realized that her wife would need to step down and be home with the kids, that they both couldn't work at the level leadership would require, so they needed to make this change. And this, of course, is an isolated example, but it's illustrated that it wasn't about one woman subordinating her career, which I've talked about in past episodes, and the research shows to be a common outcome in dual working parent decision making. Often women decide to take a step down. But in this case, it's about someone subordinating their career. Under the current extreme work model, someone must subordinate their career which really suggests that the inflexible, often extreme work model doesn't work for 21st century families. And so we need to shift the conversation and begin to see and believe that gender equity is good for all, that it is good for men, and how a more gender egalitarian future is one that will improve our lives. It's a future with potential for more happiness, reduced stress, better health, better marriages, more successful and profitable companies, more abundance. And so my manifest statement for this week relates to the aphorism I mentioned earlier. Indeed, a rising tide can lift all boats. Less gender inequality equals less gender discrimination for women and men. 
We will all thrive in a world where both genders are afforded their own pursuit of happiness, unhindered by discriminatory laws and policies, prescriptive social constructs, and gender stereotypes and biases. For all you warriors listening who want to continue to transcend barriers and thrive, make sure to hit that subscribe button. For more resources, you can visit my website, www.advancingwomenpodcast.com and connect on Instagram at Advancing Women Podcast. I love getting your feedback and ideas. So please email me at drdsimone at advancingwomenpodcast.com with your ideas and feedback. I just want to thank Joe Jacobs, the audio warrior who wrote the music for this podcast, and a huge thanks to Heather Harris, the creative warrior who designed the Advancing Woman podcast logo. And thanks to all of you for joining me here today.